Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Man, I'm excited for this. It's been over a year since we have been able to just celebrate new life and give thanks to God for children born into families in Crosspoint and to come before the Lord and to ask Him for His grace in helping us raise these children unto Him for His glory and for our joy. So let's do it. We're going to call up some families. We're going to do it in alphabetical order. So uh, if you have your favorites, um, you know, we're doing it in alphabetical order. Grandma, if, if you want to take a picture of your baby child, grandchild, um, n- nobody in this room is going to get between you and your camera or your phone and that baby. So you get up and do whatever you need to do. And church, we say this every time. This is not just tradition or sentiment What we are doing here is an act of a church family where we are first giving thanks to God for the gift of these lives, and then we are pleading with God to help these parents and to help us as a culture, a church around these parents to be the type of soil that God would be so gracious to use as good soil so that the seed of the gospel would take root in the hearts of these children. That's what we're doing here this morning. We are pleading with God for new birth in the hearts of these children at his appointed time when the wind might blow as it wills on the hearts of these children. So let's do it. First, beautiful family and child. Their first child, Jack, Sam and Sarah Brown, are coming with Jack Lawrence Brown. He was born in July of this last year. You guys can just kind of come and maybe go all the way over there, and we'll end up all the way to the other side. Next, Cameron and Sarah Carlton are bringing their son, Wesley Strother Carlton. He has a big sister, Nora, and big brother, Nolan. He was born at the end of 2019, December 24th. Josh and Danny Clevenger are bringing their son and daughter, Levi Logan Clevenger and Claralina Valor Clevenger, who Claralina was born just at the end of 2019, Levi in 2017, but we were praying for little Claralina and thank the Lord for God's grace in her life. For Danny and Jamisha Derringer and their son Dietrich, who has a big sister, Addison Quinn, that we dedicated a while back, but it's wonderful to have little Dietrich here this morning. And a family that is dedicating three children. They've been in the military, and in the coming months, we are sending this family with their three beautiful children to the Middle East, where they will take the gospel to a group of people that need the gospel. And they're taking these three beautiful children that are coming up here in just a moment. Colin and Katie Hinchy are dedicating their children, June, Lee, and Cy Lewis, and Sadie Bates, unto the Lord. And if you want to know where the Hinchies are going, they're going to a a sensitive location in the Middle East. And they will be, Lord willing, leaving sometime this upcoming year. Yeah, you guys can just go right there in front. And then one of our pastors and his fourth son, Tyler and Chelsea, are bringing Knox Ryan Kirkpatrick 
to be dedicated unto the Lord. And of course, we know Knox's big brothers, Max and Calvin and Theo. Luke and Shannon Miller, another military couple, are bringing their son Enoch Matthew. He was born in May of last year, and his daddy, I think, might have been in ranger school when Luke, is that right? When little Enoch was born and he was away. What's that? Left for school when he was two months old and was in ranger school, so he had to get reacquainted with daddy when he came back. Praise God for little Enoch. And then Billy and Lauren Oglesby, another military company uh, family, bringing their beautiful daughter Catherine, Catherine Lowe Oglesby. She goes by Callie, and she was born in September of this last year. And again, a, a family that is serving our Lord in the army. One of our longtime families serves this church in so many ways. Matt and Ashton Prelozny are bringing their third child and first son, Jack Matthew Prelozny, was born in October of this last year. He's got big sisters, Reese and Maggie, that are, I'm sure will tell him all the things he needs to do as he grows up. Taylor and Jessica Redmond are bringing their children, Hazel, Ruth Redmond, who was just uh, was born in 2019, and then just recently, little brother Titus Mims was born on January 13th of this, this year, 2021. Another military family, Jeremy and Marcia Stewart, bringing their precious girl, Grace Reyes Stewart, and she was born in July of 2019. Praise the Lord. They were both recent, mom and dad were both recently baptized. And we just found out, we thought little Grace was a miracle from the Lord. And, we, and she is, of course. And we just found out that there is another little steward baby on the way. Praise the Lord. So we can pray for mom and dad. Ben and Alex Tolley bringing their precious boy, William Pendleton Tolley. He was born in November of 2019. And he has a big sister, Emmy Claire. I had the privilege of marrying Ben and Alex, and it seems like just a few months ago, and now they have two children. We're going to dedicate Will to the Lord. And then finally, Hampton and Laura Lee Vernon are bringing little Emma Claire Vernon to the Lord, and she has a big sister that we dedicated some time ago, Ellie. Praise God for this family and these beautiful girls. Look at that picture. She's got the same hat that in that picture that she's wearing. Is that the same? Did you do that intentionally, Mom? Praise the Lord for a church full of children. And praise the Lord for children that make a joyful noise unto the Lord. We have, we have, we have grown accustomed to that over this past year. And what a gift it is uh, to, to be able to be stewards of these children. Listen to this passage from Psalm chapter 127, where the psalmist tells us how we should think of children. In verse 3, he writes, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man, or we might add the family or the church, who fills his quiver with him. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Well, the Lord has blessed these families and he's blessed this church with these little arrows that God has sovereignly ordained. Think about this. Psalm 139, David writes that he knew our days before one of them came to be. 
And so before eternity passed, God determined that each of these children would be born into these families with these moms and dads who know the Lord in a church where the gospel is preached. And he has intended to do this for his glory. And so what a privilege we have to come together as a church family and to really together commit to help these families, these moms and dads, raise these children in the Lord. Now, God uses means. He uses the means of parenting. And no parent, no mom, no dad, no household is perfect. We are all, we are all standing and parenting by grace. But he does use the means of parenting to bring about his sovereign ends. And so moms and dads, members of Crosspoint here before us with your children, do you, before your faith family, and more importantly, before the Lord, do you covenant to raise these children in such a way that you will teach them the grace of the gospel, that the goal of your parenting is not merely moral behavior, but that these children would turn from trusting in themselves and they would see that there is something outside of themselves that they need, a righteousness outside of themselves which can only be given by grace, the righteousness of Christ itself. Do you commit to put Christ in the center of your home and your parenting as the Lord enables you so that he might use even your grace-filled, imperfect parenting as a means to, Lord willing, draw these children to faith. Do you commit to that before your faith family? Amen. And church family, we say it every time, but we have a responsibility in this as well. We will be serving these children in children's ministry. We will be praying for these children. We may be raising the children that these children befriend or date or marry someday. And we have a great responsibility. No family, no person lives in a silo. We all live in a, a culture, a community. And these children have been put into this community of this church for this time. And it's our great privilege and it's our great responsibility to be good soil. Not, not to be sarcastic soil, not to be judgmental soil, not to be the type of soil that rolls their eyes at the eventual discipline problems that we may see in some of these families and these children, but to be a kind of redemptive, grace-filled soil that wants to come alongside these families and pray with them and encourage them and speak words of life into these children's hearts as the Lord gives us opportunity. So church, do we commit to be that type of church, fueled by God's grace, imperfect as we are, that God would be so kind to use us as a means of grace in the salvation of these children? Do we commit to that? Well, let's pray now. Think about it. How often do you have people, a room full of people, a sanctuary full of people, praying that God, we're talking about the new birth in John 3, last week and this week. How often do you have a room full of people praying that the wind of the Spirit would blow on your heart and save you? At that moment is happening now for these children and these families. So let's pray. Pick one out. Pick the one that you think is just the cutest. This may be giving you the stare down. And pray for that child. Come on, church, let's do this together. Let's join our hearts of faith together 
And let's pray for these children. Lord, we pray for little Jack. We pray that you would sovereignly call him to yourself. Thank you for mom and dad. Thank you for Sam and Sarah. Thank you for saving them. Lord, we pray for little Wesley. We pray by your grace that you would draw him to faith in you, that you would give Cameron and Sarah everything they need. We pray for Levi and Clara that you, Lord, would draw these two precious children. Thank you for the way that their mom and dad served this country as a military family. And we pray that this service would cause them to lift their eyes and to see the one who has served us by laying down his life on the cross. Thank you for little Dietrich. We pray for Danny and Jamisha that they would give grace, that they would give the gospel to Dietrich and it would cause him to trust in Jesus. We pray for these precious Hinchy children, for June and Sai and Sadie as they prepare to move across the world and adapt to a new culture. We pray, Lord, that their parents' call to the mission field would serve as a means of grace in the lives of these children. Let them see the gospel lived out in, in this new city that they will live in, in this new culture. Give them a heart for peoples, but give them most of all a heart for the gospel. We pray for little Knox, Lord. Thank you for causing this precious son to be born into this family with three big brothers and a family that's building their life on serving the church. Lord, would you protect Knox from some of the perilous things that come into a pastor's home and a child's heart that grows up in a pastor's home? And would, would him growing up in this ministry home be a source of blessing for him and not confusion? Lord, would he see the grace of Christ and would he respond to it at an early age? We pray for little Enoch, that he would, that he would live up to his namesake, that he would walk with the Lord. And Lord, that you would call him to yourself at an early age. As Luke and Shannon travel around in the army, Lord, as they serve, Lord, give this little boy the grace of the gospel to open his heart. We pray for little Callie's her daddy, Billy, serves our country, and as her mother serves her, Lord, give this family everything they need so that Callie, her heart would be born again, and she would love Jesus. We pray for Jack. Thank you for causing him to be born into this wonderful family with two big sisters. Lord, give Jack a new heart at an early age. Let the gospel be forefront in the Prolozny family and save little Jack. Lord, we pray for Hazel and Titus, and we pray that as they grow up in this home with a heritage in the Lord, that you would use all of these means of grace to draw these two beautiful children to you, that their lives would bear fruit for the kingdom, and that the loudest note that would be played in Hazel and Titus's life would be the good news of the gospel. Save them, Lord, I pray. Lord, we pray for little grace. Lord, let her name be what her life is all about, the grace of the gospel. Praise God for her mom and dad. Praise God for their marriage, for their salvation. Let grace receive grace upon grace in the gospel. And may she turn and trust in you. Her little will, Lord, thank you for his big sister and thank you for his mom and dad and their marriage and their salvation. And Lord, you have seen fit to cause will to be born into this family. Use it, Lord to draw him to faith in Jesus. May Will be born again in Christ at an early age. And for little Emma, thank you, Lord, for her and for her mom and dad and for the way that they love you and serve you. 
and use their lives to glorify you. Lord, we pray for Emma, that you would be gracious and that at an early age, Emma would trust in you and not herself, that you would open up her eyes and that Emma's testimony would be, along with her big sister, Ellie, that she does not remember a day when she was not trusting in Jesus. But Lord, we know that Emma needs the new birth. And so save her, I pray. Save all of these children. May the wind of the Spirit blow in their hearts. And may you draw them all. And may Christ become irresistibly beautiful to them. And may you be glorified. And may you use these imperfect homes and this imperfect church to be part of your grace that makes this clear. And we pray it all for your glory for the joy of these families, for the joy of this church, for the good of the world around us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've got a book. Yes, praise God. Yeah. Well, we've got a book on gospel parenting that we are handing out to each of the families. And thank the Lord for these these children. Let's now be ministered to in song before we hear from the word.
Amen. Thank you, guys. All right, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we left off midway through one of the most famous conversations in all of the Bible, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And so we're going to pick back up on midway through on verse 9 through 15 this morning and look at the second half of that conversation as you're finding that. Let me mention that we will be back here tonight at 6 o'clock for a continuing our Bible study through Galatians. We're going to likely finish Galatians chapter 2 this morning. And so if, you're, if you haven't been to that or you want to come out, you're welcome to just jump in tonight. It's a very informal just kind of walk through Galatians that we're doing on Sunday night here at 6 o'clock. Usually takes about an hour and 15 minutes or so. We'd love to have you. All right, so last week, if you weren't here, that's okay, I'll catch you up. John chapter 3 is, as I mentioned, one of those chapters in the Bible that is just a mountain peak. It's, it's the type of chapter, of course, all Scripture is breathed out by God, but, but John chapter 3 is one of a number of chapters that is just a kind of mountain peak. It, it contains a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, which is very well known, and then a follow-on sort of uh, speech by Jesus that contains in them, in it, some of the most important truths in the whole Bible. It, it's really one of those chapters that helps us to map out and understand the doctrine of salvation, which is, of course, one of the most important doctrines that we can understand in all of the Bible. So last week, in verses 1 through 8, there's this exchange between this religious leader, Nicodemus, who has come to Jesus at night, which in and it of itself is kind of indicative of the spiritual state of Nicodemus, that he would come not only in the obscurity of darkness, but in spiritual darkness. 
and he greets Jesus in almost a kind of challenging sort of way. It seems like he's being sort of socially gracious. And he tells Jesus in verse 3 that we know that you are a teacher from, come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless you've been sent by God. And he's referring to the signs of the miracles of John chapter 2, the previous chapter where Jesus has turned the wedding, uh, the, the, where, at the wedding at Cana when they ran out of wine, he turns water into wine. And then he drives after that uh, hundreds of people literally out of the temple. And so Nicodemus is coming, and he hasn't really even answered, asked a question yet. And Jesus responds to his statement in verse 3 by telling him this, this incredible statement, something that really is impossible from the perspective of man. If you have your Bibles open to John 3, we're going to read 9 through 15 here in just a moment. But just glance again at verse 3 where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so this causes Nicodemus to be incredulous. Like, what, what are you talking about? And Jesus goes on to tell him. In fact, Nicodemus responds, what do you mean? Can a man actually go back into his mother's womb and return again? So he's thinking in this physical way. Obviously, Nicodemus knew that was an impossibility. But he, he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. And Jesus elaborates and he basically tells Nicodemus that spiritual birth, new birth, salvation... The ability to enter into the kingdom of God and live with God forever is something that must be granted to us from above. And Jesus, he establishes this new way of even thinking about salvation. He calls it to be born again or the new birth. And remember the theological term that we looked at last week. Remember this word. It's an important word. Regeneration. It's the making new or making again. To generate something is to make it and to remake it, to regenerate, is this biblical word that means God makes us new. He makes us alive. And then God, Jesus goes even one step further and he says that this act of being born again or the new birth or regeneration, all three referring to the same thing, is something that only God can do. And he says, it's like the wind, the spirit, which is the, the third person of the Trinity that brings about this new birth by opening up a dead heart and giving it eyes to see and enabling it to believe. It's not something that man can manufacture or make happen. He says that the new birth the blowing of the Spirit is like the wind. It blows wherever it wills. And so this is the first half of the conversation. And Jesus has basically told Nicodemus, and he's telling us, that we, by nature, because of our sin, are spiritually dead. In other words, we're spiritually unable to make ourselves new again, to start over, to start fresh, to make ourselves spiritually alive so that we can... Respond to God. And so the new birth, regeneration, salvation is first and foremost something that happens to us. We're passive in it. The analogy, the illustration that we looked at and we used last week is it's like a dead person who has flatlined in a hospital bed and they're dead and we have just after they've died, we've brought the medicine to them, the very medicine that would cure their ailment and we set it on the nightstand next to their hospital bed and as they're flatlining with no life in them, 
the, the spiritual state of mankind in his birth is like that dead corpse on a hospital bed. The cure is right next to it, but it cannot reach. It can't do it. We can't, as much as we want, as much as we shout to that corpse, it will not lift its hand to drink the medicine because it cannot. And that's the spiritual state of mankind because of sin. So then, we must be given something. Something must happen to us. God must act. And we read Ephesians 2 where we read that God makes dead hearts alive by his sovereign act of regeneration. And this should humble us. This should cause us to exalt God. This should fuel our worship. And it should deepen our joy. And now we come to verse 9. Because this is not all of the conversation. Let's pick back up in verse 9. We're going to work through these verses. And then I want us to see, we're going to spend some time at the end of this text briefly. We'll work through it quickly. And we're going to spend some time looking at an Old Testament scene that Jesus references that helps us tie together really the Old Testament and the New Testament and to see how the gospel has always been preached through the ages. So verse 9, Nicodemus said to him in response to everything we just sort of summarized, he said, and you can understand how incredulous he is. How can these things be? How can, how can, he's, he's still in spiritual darkness. He can't see it. From his perspective, he's thinking about mankind, Jews in this sense, bringing about their own right standing with God, maybe through their adherence to the Old Testament law. And so this is a total new paradigm for him. And he's wondering, how can these things be? He asked that question. Verse 10, Jesus answered him. And notice a little bit of a, of a, uh, 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 a critique in Jesus' words, an intentional critique. Verse 10, and Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Not just a teacher, but really he's, he's pinning them against the wall. Are you the, like the grand poobah of Israel, and you don't understand these things? Implicit in that is a criticism of the way Nicodemus has really been reading. So up to this point, the New Testament has not been written, right? I mean, Jesus is still just, he's just beginning his ministry. And so what Jesus implicitly is saying is the very same thing that he says to the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resur resurrection at the end of his ministry when he tells them, he takes the Old Testament and he says, all of it, it's all about me. Moses and the prophets were all about me. In fact, in John chapter 5, when we get to it in, in a few weeks, we'll see Jesus criticizing the religious leaders. And he say, he's saying, you search the scriptures. And at this point, Jesus is referring to just the Old Testament because that's all that's been written. And he says, you search the scriptures thinking that in it you will find life, but you miss it unless you find me. And so Jesus is critiquing Nicodemus here for his wrong reading, his blind reading of the Old Testament. It wasn't about how man can ultimately make himself right with God. It was about the grace of the gospel. So Nicodemus should have been able to read Ezekiel 36 that we read last week. And when God, through the prophet Ezekiel, promises a new covenant that he says, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and cause you to walk in my statutes. That's an Old Testament picture or shadow of the new birth that Jesus has just spoken to Nicodemus about. 
In fact, in Ezekiel 37, when Ezekiel the prophet has this dream or this vision of Israel as a valley of dry bones, dead, and God says to the prophet Ezekiel, speak my word, preach my word to this valley of dry bones and speak it and say live and breathe and God in Ezekiel's vision he causes this valley of dry bones which is representative of Old Testament Israel to actually come alive and live and what Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus is you should be able to piece together what I've just told you about the miracle of God alone bringing life with the promises of the old covenant but obviously Nicodemus cannot because he's dead. He's spiritually dead. Verse 11, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Just one little thought. Jesus is basically saying, look, I'm preaching the gospel to you. I'm telling you truth, but you don't receive it. Why the plural? Again, I think Jesus may be a bit sarcastic here because Nicodemus came to him with sort of the, the royal we, you know, at the beginning of the conversation. We know, Jesus, that you were sent from God. You know, when you talk to somebody that way, you're kind of, you're in a sense sort of assuming a kind of communal authority. Well, people are saying, you know, you're wanting him to know that I'm the representative of a bunch of people. Pastor, people are saying People are saying? What are, what are you trying to intimidate me with this? What's going on here? That's, that's, that's what Jesus is getting at here. And so he's kind of turning it back in a sarcastic way, I think, when he says, we speak of what we know and bear witness. Maybe he's referring, some people have thought, well, maybe Jesus is referring to himself and the disciples, but the disciples haven't really even been kicked off or commissioned in their ministry yet. Jesus is the only one doing the teaching here. So I think Jesus is sort of undercutting, in a sense, in a sarcastic way, Nicodemus' assumed authority, and even in that, he tells him truth. Jesus is essentially saying, oh, you, know, you think you know some stuff? Well, I know everything, and I have brought the truth, but you do not receive my testimony. Verse 12, he says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What does Jesus mean here by earthly and heavenly things? Now, this might be a little hard to follow, but what I think Jesus is referring to when he says earthly things is he's talking to him about things that happen here on earth, meaning the new birth. So he's basically saying, if, 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 if I've told you earthly things, I just told you about the new, the new birth, the sovereign grace of God that happens here in time on earth, if you don't believe that, if you don't understand that, then how are you going to get the teachings of the heavenly things, the things that pertain to the consequences, the result of the new birth, which is eternity and entrance eventually into the kingdom of God for all those that trust in him. I think that's what verse 12 is saying. And then he says in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Again, a bit of a tricky, complicated verse here, but essentially Jesus is basically saying that the authority to say these things comes from heaven. And at the beginning of verse 13, he's saying, no one has ascended into heaven. In fact, I'm from heaven and I've descended. And so I have the authority to say these things, which then brings us to verses 14 and 15. And now Jesus is going to introduce a story, a scene, a, a part of the history of Israel 
that is, is going to uh, just show us the depth and the beauty and the richness of the gospel. So verses 14 and 15, let me read it. Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, what is Jesus talking about when he says Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness? Well, Jesus is referring to a scene in the history of Israel from Numbers chapter 21. So let's do that. Go to Numbers chapter 21 in your Bibles, all the way to the left, part of the first five books of the Bible, Numbers chapter 21. And Jesus refers to this scene in verses 4 through 9 of Numbers 21. But I want us to read the few verses before as well and just kind of work through this story and see the point that Jesus is making. Now, as you're finding Numbers chapter 21, let's just do a little background. In fact, if you're following with us on our five-day-a-week Bible reading plan that we've been doing, uh, you hopefully read Numbers a couple weeks ago. If you're behind, this is a guilt-free zone. That's okay. Don't worry. We get behind, pick up, get back on your horse wherever you are and start reading the Bible again. But Numbers is, is one of those books that is really kind of uh, sort of undervalued, I think. It is full of incredible, rich stories about God's dealings with his people in the Old Testament. He has just given them the law at the beginning of Numbers, and now they are to go. They have the law, the, the, the Ten Commandments that Moses gives them. This is striking. Think about this. In fact, Numbers... Numbers is a kind of picture. It's, it's about the history of Israel wandering through the wilderness, but it is a kind of picture, really, of the Christian life that we all sort of live to one degree or another. Because here's what happens at the beginning of Numbers. God has just given Israel the law, the commandment, through Moses on Mount Sinai, and now they are to go from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land which should have been about a two-week journey, two weeks from Sinai to the Promised Land. You know how long it took them for that two-week journey? Forty years. We have a saying here in the South. It's called going around your elbow to get to your nose. That's what Israel does. In other words, we rarely, if ever, walk a straight line of sanctification. We mess up, we disobey, we get into all sorts of trouble. We, we go around our elbow to get to our nose, metaphorically speaking, because of our rebellion, because of our weakness, even after God has made us his own. And that's the story of Israel in Numbers, chapter, the whole book of Numbers. Well, we find ourselves towards the end of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 21. And there's this incredible scene. I mean, trial after trial, God rescuing them, God bearing with his stiff-necked and rebellious people, just like he bears with us. And in verse 1, let's just read the first three verses just to set up the scene. This isn't the bronze serpent story, but just to give us a context of where we are. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived, and this is Numbers 21, verse 1, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Athram, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So that, that's just a kind of analogy. To get to the promised land, we're going to fight foes. The Christian life is in many ways a fight. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, 
If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. Okay, so even just the, the tenses uh, the, of the, 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 I don't know if the tenses is the right word. I hope my mom doesn't listen to this. She's an English teacher. The, 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 they're using the plural version. Is that, am I right? Yeah, they're, they're talking, Israel's talking about I in a, in a singular sense. I don't know what I'm talking about. I see a lot of shaking heads out here. What I'm trying to make the point is, is that millions of people are speaking sort of collectively as one in this moment. It's not a tense. It's whatever. You know what I'm talking about. And don't tell my mom when she visits. And they're speaking singularly here as one people. And they commit to the Lord, if you get us out of this, we will devote their cities to destruction. Which in the Old Testament, there are many times when God tells his people to annihilate people groups because of their false worship. Not hear me on this. People have wrongly through the years in a, in, a, in a wicked sort of wrong way of looking at the Bible, use that as some sort of justification for ethnic cleansing. That's, that's absolutely wrong. What is going on there is it is a picture of God spiritually sanctifying his people. This does not give us any means by which we can say that one culture is superior to another now in the new covenant, but it is a picture in the old covenant of God establishing his people and wanting to make them holy and saying, do not have anything to do with these false gods. And if you, if you sort of tangle with, if you dance, if you flirt with these other cultures, you will fall. And so get rid of it all. In Israel, collectively commits to do that at verse 3 and look at verse 3 and the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites and they devoted them and their cities to destruction so the name of the place was called Hormah so God this is the context of what we're about to get into God has just answered their prayer and given them a great victory by his sovereign grace verse 4 now this is an incredible story and this is the story that Jesus is referring to. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. So God has just rescued them, and they're already griping. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So, you know, we talk a lot about gospel amnesia, just kind of forgetting the goodness of God. Verse 5 is a picture of the gospel amnesia, the forgetting of the good news. God has just rescued them from this king of Arad. And oh, by the way, just as a little note, I don't, I don't think this is unintentional. They walked by way of the Red Sea, which certainly would have conjured up memories of God rescuing them from Egypt. And yet, even though things are a little hard, they still get impatient and they still grumble with God. And they say, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? I mean, I know you rescued us from the Egyptian army. You just rescued us from this king of Arad, but now certainly you've given up on us and you're going to cause us to die. Friends, this is a master class in losing perspective. 
Anybody else? I got a couple degrees in that, man. I've taken that. I can validate that class. I don't even have to take the test. I can test out of that class. We lose perspective so quickly, don't we? Then, verse 6, man, then, now how does the Lord respond to the whiny impatience of Israel? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. That's in the Bible. God killed some of his people because they were whiny. I mean, I think I should read verse 6 again. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Verse 7, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. God uses, he's about to act, but he uses the means of Moses' intercession. In this way, Moses is a kind of picture of Christ. Romans 8 says that Christ is interceding for us. Verse 8, and the Lord said to Moses, and this is where Jesus ties it together from our text back in John 3, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. What in the world? So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, this is a striking story. Why would God do this? What's going on? There's so much we can learn from this scene. First, we just, we just are chastened by how fickle Israel was and how fickle we can be and how whiny we can be. Secondly, we, these, these snakes that he just unleashed in the camp, bit a bunch of people, killed them. Listen, we're, we're all bitten with sin. We're all, we all have that venom coursing through our veins and we all need to be cured for it, from it. And God miraculously provides the cure through the means of a serpent being lifted up according to the prayer of Moses that he answered. So instead of just waving his hand and saying, okay, it's all better now, God, who's all-powerful, uses Moses' prayer and answers his prayer through the means of a serpent, a bronze serpent, a symbol of the judgment, a symbol of the thing that's caused death, lifting it up and forcing the people, saying, think about this, look at the very thing that has brought judgment upon you. Don't look away. I'm not erasing this. Look at it. Come to grips with your sin and see the consequences of your sin. See it raised up. See judgment on that stick. Look at the snake. Look at it. And if you look at it, you will live. Instead of just saying, God, just get me out of this. Just get me out of this. Well, I promise if, if you get me out of this one more time, I just, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. I'll never, I'm just going to keep my head down. I'll never do it again. And God says to Israel, 
Look at the snake. Look at it. I don't want to look at it. It's reminding reminding me that I've got this venom coursing through my veins. I don't want to think about my sin. I don't want to think about the consequences. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to look at judgment. I don't want to look at the snake and live. And Jesus is saying that about himself. Back now to John chapter 3. Look again at verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, look at the snake. Look at the thing that has brought you judgment. Look at the horrific consequences of your sin. Look at it. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Friends, Jesus is preaching the gospel to Nicodemus from the Old Testament. Here's just a question. I just wonder, what was going on in Nicodemus' heart when he heard Jesus saying these things? You know, we don't hear much about Nicodemus. He, he pops up a couple more times in Scripture. We won't take the time to read it, but in, in John chapter 7, Jesus is being accused by the Pharisees, and they're, they're, they're wanting really to drag him away and kill him. And Nicodemus, kind of from the crowd, he says, wait, wait a minute. Kind of, he, he makes like, you can, almost like a courtroom scene. He argues not for Jesus and what he's saying, but he argues for Jesus on procedural grounds. And he says, wait a minute, we should at least sort of hear out what this man has to say is essentially what he's saying. He's, it's, like, it's like you can feel this, this internal struggling going on in Nicodemus. And then at the end of John, in fact, I want you to see this. Go, go to John. Go open, open go, you're in John 3 or maybe you're in Numbers 21, but go to the end of John. I want you to see this. John chapter 19 And Nicodemus pops up again. John chapter 19 and verse 38. Think about what Nicodemus says. This is after the crucifixion of Jesus. After Jesus has been, not just metaphorically, but has been literally lifted up on the cross. And Nicodemus has seen that. And now Jesus has died And look who comes back in the story in John chapter 19. And imagine what might be going on in Nicodemus' heart. John 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Man, we could spend some time there, but, but we don't have that time. Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they, meaning Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So Nicodemus is the one 
preparing Jesus' body for the tomb, don't you think he's maybe recollecting this conversation that he had with Jesus back in John 3 about if I be lifted up, if you look at the judgment, if you look at the judgment, you will live. That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. So friends, what is Jesus' main point of this conversation with Nicodemus? I think it's this, just this clear, is that salvation is a miracle of God's sovereign grace. The wind blows where it wills. The new birth must come from above. Nobody can make themselves born again. Israel in the desert could not ward off the venomous snakes. They needed God to act, and God acts in strange and beautiful ways. He takes in the Old Testament the very picture of judgment, which is this serpent, and he calls Moses to make it a bronze statue and to lift it up so that salvation would come through these non-earthly, unhuman means, and that is a kind of Old Testament shadow that points to the cross, that God himself would become a man and would bear the punishment that even he's bringing. God the Son is bearing the punishment, the judgment of God the Father. And we don't want to think about that. We don't want to think about what our sin has brought about. We don't want to look to the cross. We just want lessons on how to get by better. We don't want to consider the depth of our sin and the depth of the consequences and the holiness of God. We want to look away from the bronze serpent and we want to look away from the cross. But the message of Jesus is look and live. See what your sin has done and see what the holiness of God has done for your sin and see the life that only I can give. That's his point to Nicodemus. Salvation is a miracle of God's sovereign grace. But Jesus makes two additional points here that would just, just wrap this up quickly. He says that this miracle doesn't come apart from means. He, things happen here. Jesus makes two more points. He says that he must be lifted up. Nobody's saved apart from the gospel. The new birth doesn't come apart from Jesus becoming a real man and dying a death for real sin and God's real holiness being satisfied on the cross and the real death in the grave being conquered by a real Jesus. So friends, when you see Jesus lifted up, know all that is behind that in God's plan of salvation. The wind doesn't just blow where it wills apart from the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of God the Son as the victor over the venom of our sin. He must be lifted up. Nobody comes to faith. Nobody comes to the new birth apart from around the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Peter says. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Again, there's the grounds, not because of anything he sees in us, not because of any good in us, not because of any faith that we have prior to. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How were you born again? How can you have this new life over death? Because Jesus conquered death. He paid the penalty for our death and he rose again. And now all that look to him live. Secondly, Jesus says now, and this is, this is the, I love this because the Bible is so comfortable with putting truths together that we find contradictory. The Bible just is so comfortable with that. The second thing that Jesus emphasizes, he's, remember, he's just told us that wherever the wind blows is where salvation comes. It's a sovereign act of God. And then he says in verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus wants to make sure that we are not tempted to say, well, gosh, the wind blows where it wills, then what's the point? Let's just go home and, you know, watch reruns. Or let's just, let's just let God do it. Then, then if, if, if God's going to save Israel, then why did Moses need to pray? If God's just going to do what he's going to do, then why does Moses have to respond to God and actually make a bronze serpent and lift it up? Can't it just sort of happen? No, God fastens his sovereign plan of grace to the means of Moses' prayer and the belief that he calls all of us to believe. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So friends, do not interpret from this great, enormous, magnificent truth of God's sovereignty in salvation that man is somehow now not responsible to believe we are. And the Bible is comfortable with putting these two things right together. And Jesus has done that in this text. The wind blows where it will. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Listen to Jesus' reasoning at the end of his life, really, really on Palm, the Holy Week, kind of this might even be on Palm Sunday, Matthew 23, verse 37. Listen to this. Listen to where Jesus puts the responsibility for unbelief, not on God's sovereignty, but on man's defiance. Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, this is Jesus about to enter Jerusalem in the Holy Week. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You were not willing. Whoever believes in me may have eternal life. Do not conclude from John chapter 3, 1 through 8, that, oh, well, the wind might not be blowing on me. Don't. You are the pot, not the potter. It's your responsibility to do what the potter has commanded you to do, and he commands everyone to believe. 
listen to this truth. And this man, you, you guys know I love Romans, but one of the reasons I love Romans is it puts these things right next to each other and just lays it out there. And the Bible isn't, it, it, it's not in conflict. It, it, it's not uncomfortable with what we perceive as this tension that makes us nervous. The Bible puts it right there and it feels no stress on trying to get God off of some hook or get off us off of some hook. It just lays it out there right next to each other in two chapters, Romans 9 and Romans 10. Listen to Romans 9, verses 14 through 16. This is Paul. And I think in Romans 9 is the, is the most thorough explanation of the utter, free, sovereignty of God and salvation. That salvation doesn't depend on anything in the creature, but it's unconditional. It's something that God gives as he wills. And he says in verse 14 of Romans 9, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? As Paul anticipating the fact that we don't think it's fair that the wind will blow where it wills, that God would be utterly sovereign. By no means, he says. For he says to Moses, and he's quoting Exodus, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, meaning salvation, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Friends, that is clear as clear can be. And if that's all that the Bible had to say about salvation, we might be tempted to go home and say, well, the wind's going to blow where it wills. What part do we have in it? But just one chapter later, in Romans chapter 10, Paul says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Well, it depends on God. But God's sovereign grace in Romans 9 is fastened to God's means of grace in Romans 10. God never brings about his will in Romans 9 apart from the means of Romans 10. Back to John chapter 3, God doesn't blow the spirit that brings regeneration apart from the call, apart from the person who looks and lives. God doesn't bring healing to Israel in the desert apart from Moses' prayer and Moses' obedience and Moses lifting up the bronze serpent and apart from those who will look and live. Friends, we think about how theologically arrogant we can be. We see things in the Bible that seem to contradict itself. God is utterly sovereign. Man is responsible. And we, we say, oh, well, that can't be. And we join one camp or the other, and we get mad at the other. Let's let these two truths stand. God is sovereign. The wind blows where it wills. You're dead. You're a corpse. You have no hope apart from God. Believe. Look and live. And the gospel is so powerful. Jesus is so beautiful that the call brings with it the ability. The call 
creates what it commands. Back to Numbers 21, verse 9. Look at that last verse again. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Fast forward hundreds of years. God, before time began, fashioned a wooden cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And he set his son on that cross. And whoever, whoever, which is all of us that have been bitten by the serpent, which is sin, if we will look, we will live. Friends, look and live at the sun lifted up. Let me pray. Lord, this is the gospel. Whatever else may be going on in anybody's life in this room, I pray first for my friends that are in here that came in dead in their sins, bitten like all of us by the the serpents of sin. Lord, would you cause them to look at the Son of Man lifted up, crucified, dead, risen, exalted in all of his glory so that they may live. Lord, for the rest of us that are like those Israelites in the desert that have been rescued, may it cause us humility and joy and worship and may we center our lives on the provision of the cross, the provision of the Son lifted up in whom we don't just live at one moment unto salvation, but for the rest of our lives unto you forever. Do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.